0: In this second N4D podcast, we're going to focus on the political economy of Aid. Our guest, Habib Meyar, who is the Deputy Secretary General of the G seven plus Secretariat, has a lot of views on aid effectiveness, and you may wonder, well, what has that got to do with addressing malnutrition? Well, for our listeners to know, many of the countries that M4D focuses on are fragile, conflict affected, and have a disproportionately high burden of malnutrition, perhaps unsurprisingly. But what we find in these countries is a preponderance to be somewhat dominated by repeated annual humanitarian responses, which are of huge value in of their own right, in the sense that humanitarian response saves lives, treats malnutrition. But what we also see in these contexts is a lack of attention, really, to thinking ahead to how the resilience of these populations is going to be built so that malnutrition can be prevented and how these nations will, through their peace and reconciliation efforts, get onto a more developmental footing, which is incredibly important from a nutrition perspective. Hello, and welcome to the N4D podcast on politics of ending malnutrition. Today, we are chatting in a room in Amman, Jordan. And with me is Chris Leather and Jeremy Shohan, the N4D co-directors that I have the privilege to work with. More importantly, we also have in the room, Mr. Habib Meyar, who is the Deputy Secretary General of the G7 Plus, which is based in Timor-Leste and is a really interesting platform, which brings together around 20 countries to promote peace and stability and they do this through a lot of different innovative ways and habib has been with us for the past three days in a meeting that n4d uh, was fortunate enough to support and be involved with the first ever national gathering of yemeni actors across yemen to discuss malnutrition. So this meeting has just finished after three days of a lot of intensive dialogue, breakout groups and culminated in some thinking about how to take steps forward to deal with malnutrition more effectively in Yemen. We'll come back to that in this conversation But that for now is the background to this podcast. We are discussing Yemen. We're discussing the politics of Yemen and how that relates to taking greater efforts towards combating malnutrition. Now to say a little bit about Yemen for our listeners, Yemen hosts around 23 million people. It's famous for so many of the wrong reasons right now. And a lot of our listeners will know it's been affected by conflict for seven or eight years. It has uh, one of the it's viewed as a country uh, that has one of the largest humanitarian crises of the moment. Seventy percent of the population are estimated to be a dependent. Millions of people are displaced. It has apparently a collapsed economy, has high levels of poverty and from a nutrition perspective it is a country that unfortunately has some of the highest burdens of malnutrition globally and indeed we were hearing over the past three days that since 2011 malnutrition rates haven't improved at all and in some sectors of the population has even declined so there are some real problems but i think the focus of our podcast isn't just on the problems but on some of the solutions and some of the thinking and energy that came out of these three days. But for now, welcome everybody, and over to you.
1: Thank you, Carmel. Great, so um, we have with us then Mr. Habib um, Rahman Maya. Is that pronounced correctly? That's correct. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I guess, The place to start might be, tell us a little bit how G7 Plus was formed and your journey to be part of that.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, the G7 Plus, as uh, uh, you mentioned, is a group of 20 conflict-affected countries. It's an intergovernmental organization. It's a voluntary organization. Um, The membership is voluntary. Uh, which is uh, founded on the notion of human solidarity rather than any vested interest, which might be something of unique because Mm -hmm. in the international relation, that's something which is an alien concept. It was established in 2010 as an informal organization. Uh, We have uh, a headquarters in uh, Dili Timor-Leste and uh, we pursue peace and stability through collective advocacy, uh, promoting uh, national dialogue and reconciliation and advo- advocating for better engagement or effective engagement uh, founded on the principles of country ownership um, and country context and we also promote and facilitate sharing of lessons among these conflict affected countries uh, now this will also this might also sound a bit interesting uh, because normally these countries are known for you know, for being in war, uh, being poor, being fragile, but there are some important, you know, uh, strides that these countries have made. And usually those improvements or those progresses are not captured um, globally. Probably the global system might be too sophisticated for, for to capture those incremental progress. So we found out that these lessons can be inspiring for other countries. Mm-hmm. And that's what we call, we, we uh, coined the concept of Fragile to Fragile Cooperation, which not only includes sharing of lessons, but also um, providing support to some of these countries. And I can speak of some examples later, uh, where one GSON Plus member country stepped forward and supported another member um, in, you know, another region, uh, out of solidarity. Uh, so, yeah, this is, this is how we, we, are, we are established and uh, formed. Okay,
1: thank you. You made a very powerful presentation this morning, um, in which you said a number of things that resonated, I think, with all of us here. Um, you talked about international aid, not respecting local systems. You talked about countries becoming dependent on aid, um, the need to push back against the hegemony of aid systems. You talked about aid actually exacerbating fissures um, and antagonisms and tensions in countries. Um, could you say a little bit more about
2: So, that? if you, um, you know, look at uh, the whole architecture of aid, um, which was formed after the World War II, um, you know, um, the blueprints have not changed yet. Um, they are still the same blueprints and being applied in all these countries um, without an intention to change it or to reform it so that it can accommodate the new realities. And secondly, this architecture lacks a long-term vision of pursuing self-reliance and stability in these countries. Um, if you look at any aid projects, um, it's time-bound, it's, you know, very specific and very ad-hoc because the donors have to uh, justify to the taxpayers that they did something meaningful, you know, their tax money is being spent in this country and they have to show some Mm -hmm. success in the form of projects and things. But we don't think about the long-term, you know, um, uh, trajectory of these countries. Um, And I think that has been captured in the aid policies. Uh, And this is one reason where unintentionally aid, you know, creates fragmentation. And sometimes it even increases the fragmentation, which is already there. I I have to say here unintentionally, because I'm not saying that, you know, aid is, um, you know, not out of generosity, it's not out of solidarity. For us as citizens of these countries, we value each and every penny of that aid that is coming because it's coming from the pockets of a fellow human being in another part of the world who provide the support and who agree with their government. You know, they want to help out of purely human solidarity. And of course, it's not in the international relation, but that is what the reality is. they don't think about the long term stability of the countries so what we advocate for is that we need to um, you know we need to um, look how we can achieve self reliance in these countries what is our end goal what is our objective should we continue perpetually relying on aid or should we be self dependent and the, unfortunately the current aid architecture has not answered that question yet Mm. And, you know, that's why um, the same practices are being um, copied pasted, the same policies are copied pasted everywhere without looking into context of that country. Every country has a different unique context, a background. Um, if we go to a country to support it, we need to be sensitive to that context. Only then we can address the challenges on a on, on sustainable mm. manner. Uh, otherwise, we just, you know, we are being reactionary in our approach as donors. So, this is one of the major, um, I think this was the reason why we existed, why we started existing, um, why we came together as a group of G7 Plus, just to pursue and to convince and to advocate that we need to, um, the donors need to understand our context, the donors need to understand our challenges, our background, and we need to be in the driving seat. Of deciding where should the aid be spent and how should it be spent, um, and you know, rather than you know, copying pasting the same approach everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, so it goes with the common saying that one size fits all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's what they're trying. They're trying to fit everything, you know, um, the same the same blueprint everywhere, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work, mm-hmm. and it has not worked. Um, and you know, the 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 background to our existence was the fact that it was ineffective uh, because of you know, these um, uh, unintentionally ineffective aid architecture. And the second thing um, which is very important and that's what we um, start existing as well, we, we have lived the reality that unless there is peace any investment in development um, is uh, not effective at all. Um, when you don't have peace, if you build a school, it's burned down. If you construct the road, it's destroyed. If you develop human skill, they are killed. So we believe that um, without peace, you cannot achieve development outcome. And of course, without investing in development, you cannot sustain peace. So peace and development go hand in hand. But in those countries which are war affected, there should be a, a, attempts to have peace first, and then investment can become effective.
3: Chris? Mm. So there's
2: a lot of talk and rhetoric within the
3: international aid community about country ownership and investing in local and national systems. But in the presentation you gave earlier today, you talked about how often there is mistrust in local actors and local institutions what examples do you have from g7 plus countries of where there is that kind of mistrust but where actually there are opportunities and local actors um, that, that the international aid system could be working with and supporting and strengthening what examples can you give around that
2: mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. Uh, you know, when we came together um, with, uh, you know, with the GSON plus the members and then we started engaging with donors um, in the civil society on a platform it is called International Dialogue on Peace Building and State Building. Uh, it was a political, you know, dialogue. It was meant to be political and still it exists. It's, a, it's called IDPS. And we discussed the same, you know, um, Issues and we brought our experiences of where there are opportunities where donors can trust on our our systems and our institutions. Um, and we, we th- this was not um, it was not any a theoretical conversation, but it was based on actually lived experiences that we shared. And that culminated into the development of what we call uh, the New Deal for Engagement in fragile states. It was a set of uh, princi- uh, principles that we agreed in Busan in 2011 and that would guide any intervention in the fragile states and at the the foundation of that framework was the recognition of five peace building state building goals and then two sets of principles on effective engagement um, it was political dialogue and it, it was political declaration and you know we were very happy that it will you now everything would change but unfortunately um, that dialogue you know or that new deal it became um, and you know it became a technical tool for donors we were just like drawn into technical conversation okay how we have to make a work plan for this implementation we have to develop a list of indicators and it took us years to agree on those indicators and while the actual business was not really you know given an attention and we still, you know, that, that document is still relevant. It's, it's one of the, uh, one of the uh, I would say, um, uh, pioneer of establishing this nexus between peace and development and the country ownership and trust from the institutions. Um, and we are still struggling with, you know, to make it even more relevant. But then what happens when, when donors go back to capital, they have to work, they are subject to working under the policies that have been established there changing those policies and, you know, the in the legislative conversations, it takes, it's another layer of, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the donor's uh, politics that, that it, uh, unfortunately it didn't happen. Now, in terms of opportunities, there are, even within the G7+, plus there are various examples where we have proved that, you know, if you trust in the local or in the national institutions, it will work. Mm-hmm. Um, I can give you an example of, uh, you know, uh, where it has worked. Um, one earlier I mentioned in my um, um, in, uh, in introductory remarks that um, during the peer learning we also cooperate with other countries. Uh, in Guinea-Bissau, um, a country in, in Africa, uh, there was an election, there was supposed to be an election in 2013. Uh, Guinea-Bissau was unfortunately a country which has seen a lot of coups, you know, um, uh, from time to time. Um, finally, it came. It became under. It, it came under the embargo of donors and the European Union and everyone, saying that you know, until and unless you have democratically elected government and you know, election, we will freeze all the aid and will not deliver any assistance at all. And you know, the 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 um, de facto authorities. They agreed. Okay, we want to conduct an election. Um, let us tell us how. And how much will it cost, and how we should, you know, what will, where will the resources come from? So they sent, you know, the missions, um, international uh, partners. Uh, they did an assessment of election, and they told us that you need forty million dollars to conduct an election. And then, you know, the government of Guinea-Bissau, the de facto government, okay, give us forty million dollars. And they denied They said no, donors cannot give you the um, aid because you are, there is an embargo. So you have to conduct the election. And the country is the poorest country. It doesn't have, you know, even, it couldn't afford $4 million. Mm. So what happened was that, you know, it's a member of G7 Uh, Plus. Timor-Leste, which is a fellow member, and the only commonality that Timor-Leste and Guinea-Bissau have is that they were both Portuguese colonies. The government of Timor-Leste stepped forward and they said that, you know, we want to first do an assessment and we want to see if we can help you. So they went there. They did an assessment, and guess what? They said that you don't need forty million dollars. All you need is six million to seven million dollars, and you can conduct the election, which purely on the standard, which would be uh, according to the international standard. And we would be happy to give you seven million dollars under the umbrella of the G7. Plus. And they also have to honor those, you know, embargo because they're also part of, you know, Portugal is there and within the EU, and they say we would like to use the G7 plus. So what it teaches and it, the election was conducted with the seven million dollars and you know with, with the same standards and it was internationally recognized, very successful and there was a government. What it teaches is that the trust in the systems or in the institutions in another country which is also war affected but it has done it has made some improvements mm-hmm. and that could be a good example for the international community. Mm-hmm. Same, if you go to, for example, in Somalia, we had, the for the very first time in many years, there was a coordination mechanism that came together under the New Deal umbrella. And there was an opportunity for the donors to change their behavior. Unfortunately, there was no willingness, there was no political will, although technically they would be participating in the meetings, and they would be talking about the structures of how to align aid, how to harmonize donors, how to bring humanitarian and development actors, but unfortunately they didn't, you know, there was no political will to actually change that. Mm. And there was, there was institutions and the government was very, you know, flexible and they said that, okay, we are happy to, you know, follow this, but unfortunately it didn't happen. So I think there is this lip service that, you know, most international community or the donors uh, mm. really like. Uh, what we find out when there is a will, there is, you know, opportunity and you could, you could make those changes. Uh, so, yeah.
0: Interesting. Thank you, Habib. I mean, I, for me, it raises a question about how will the donors shift their mindset? I mean, we've just all spent three days yeah. in a meeting on Yemen, which is overly humanitarian dominated. Enormous resources going into Yemen which do save lives But what those resources are not doing is building resilience and It isn't in our case and what we've been focused on preventing malnutrition Not really certainly it's saving lives and that should never be underestimated but there is a imbalance between on the one hand the humanitarian budget and on the other investment in resilience building, peace building probably, and development. So how, what's your experience in G7+, Plus as to how do, how do you get the donors to shift the dial? Like, what is going to tip the balance in favour of trust in national institutions, investing in longer term uh, thinking, as you were saying earlier? And in the case of dealing with malnutrition, supporting those actions that will prevent malnutrition happening in the first place, even in fragile contexts. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, we are living now in a globalised mm. village, or global village, you know, where humans have been interconnected. Um, what happens in one part of the world will definitely affect the the other part of the world. Uh, yeah. this, is, this gives us a hope as well. Um, because we have seen that, um, you know, with the concurrent crisis that is happening now, you know, the climate change, the war in Ukraine, and, you know, this geopolitical fragmentation among big powers. Uh, and then, you know, this huge portion of humanity who is living in the so-called Global South and then these war-affected countries all these sufferings are creating what we call spillover impact.
0: Yeah.
2: And why I say that we now have a hope is that we saw, you know, the, um, the refugee crisis affecting Europe. Yeah. Very badly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, and it, it, it continues affecting it. Um, as you, you read from news everywhere. Um, we saw that, you know, this... If we, could, if we did not have wars in, you know, or conflict or fragility in Africa or in the Middle East or in Asia, we would not have the refugee crisis. It has affected the whole community, the whole world. So this might induce donors in the international community that we really need to look at the, you know, addressing the, the, the problem at the root cause. Okay, this is uh, easier said than done because there is a geopolitics, unfortunately, mm. um, and there is this power competition. Uh, but, you know, there was this emblem that became very famous in, during the COVID-19 that, you know, nobody is safe until everyone is safe. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: and I think that is now becoming a reality, a real mm. challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think we, um, we need to um, continuously um, advocate and we need to continuously engage in dialogue With the international community, with donors, to change. Yeah. Otherwise, the spill over over impact is so rapid, and this is so you know these reactionary um, you know uh, responses will has already dried out the resources. We are now going through global you know Mm -hmm. economic downturn, which has affected everyone, and it will donors must ask themselves to what extent can they start you know to what extent can they continue affording that Mm. so i say that you know on one hand it's a challenge that we are running out of resources but on the other hand it might you know induce focus the the, the mind exactly so that you know to address and to stop um, uh, probably uh, you know needs Uh, we need to we really need to reduce dependency. And I think that, that, that is the only, the only hope that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of the frustrations that we experience
1: uh, and have for years is how international aid, especially in fragile contexts, bypasses government. It goes through uh, the, the uh, UN, INGO system mainly. And the main reason um, given by donors for that is that too, there 's too much risk, too much fiduciary risk that government systems can 't be relied upon to be accountable for these resources, and that some of it will be spent um, unwisely. Um, I just wondered what your perspective on that is
2: well we we even have a we, we propose a solution for that, and that is under the new deal um, we, we understand. The, the challenge on our part. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan working in the aid coordination, this was one of the greatest, you know, like always a, a discussion. Mm-hmm. What we analyzed was that, you know, in uh, 13 years, when I was still, I was there, 80% of aid bypassed the, the national system. You know, that is the public financial mm-hmm. management. Mm-hmm. And even that 20% aid that was channeled through the government system it was not in a way that the money would come to the central bank of the government. It was just an entry in the system, and we would continue you know, like recording it in the budget. And there were a lot of layers of checks and balance to just respond to that you know, concern that the donors had, that, okay, this money is not very well managed, there are fiduciary risks and they, it, there is corruption, which we also understand, we do not deny. Mm. But what we also saw that is, the corruption in the what we call the on-budget assistance was not that severe as it was outside the budget. So there would be contracts of multi-million you know contracted to a multinational company and that company then would subcontract it and it would go the subcontracting would go until 15 or 20 layers. Mm. Now you look at this hierarchy who are you going to hold accountable? And how can donors do it? Donors do not, they don't have any, you know, they, they cannot drag those companies. The final contractor would be the national company. So what we told them that, okay, this is an expensive way of doing things. You know, we, we provide you a, a mechanism. We had a trust funds there. We had, uh, you know, a joint mechanism to, to monitor and audit that. And it was, it would be less expensive, very efficient way of, you know, managing your resources. All these, you know, the margin that you deduct from, you know, by subcontracting it to the subcontractors and then to the other contractors. And every contractor will have to sit out some benefits out of it. It is taxpayer's money, of the donors. And it goes to the pockets of, you know, millionaires. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, they will be national, but also international as well. So under the new deal, we agreed on a principle we say that we will enter into a compact you know we will give you a as governments uh, benchmarks that okay these are you know what your concerns are we are going to respond to those concerns and we are going to manage it and your duty is to trust in our system and then do a joint analysis we will share the audit reports you can also come and audit us you know you could and th- this is what they did in every project for example they do on every project but i also have to say that there are some good practices which has also already proven um, you know uh, relevant and successful mm-hmm. the eu for example they have state budget support they give some benchmarks to the countries if they fulfill that they provide you know assistance and it's working yeah i haven't read i haven't heard any any concerns in any of the places mm-hmm. but then, the, the sad side of this is that all this money is being recorded on the name of the country. So when I remember in 2013, we went to Somalia, there was a pledge that was done in uh, Brussels uh, through a donor's conference. I think they committed $1.3 billion or something. And after a few months, we went to Somalia to visit the government and just like to ask them that okay, how is this aid being managed? And when we asked the Prime Minister, so now, in this pledging conference, the Prime Minister was sitting there and he was co-chairing this pledging conference. So now every taxpayer in the donor country said that, okay, we gave this much money to Somali, to Somalian citizens. And when we came and when we asked, when we sat with the Prime Minister and we asked them that, okay, how are you managing this aid? He said that I don't have any, I don't have any information where the aid is being spent. I have zero information on the money that is being spent. It's spent through INGOs, the UN channels and not even local NGOs, which are you know like parallel structures. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any control of that. And you know, if you don't have any control, how can you be held accountable? So now if there is this concern that you know aid money is wasted in, in, in corruption, if I don't have any control over you know managing it, me as a government cannot be held accountable for that money because I don't have any, you know, I don't, I don't have my hands on that money. So, there are ways of, you know, managing it. Like, as I told you, there were several mechanisms that, you know, can, can address this, uh, you know, this risk and this concern. And we do not deny that there is corruption. There is no corruption. There is corruption. And you also have to look at, you know, why, um, you know, what are some of the, 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 the underlying roots? One of the very bad, that donors follow is creating parallel systems in countries. Within a ministry there will be, you know, PIUs, they call it Project Implementation Units. Within one ministry you have, you know, 40 PIUs. Now these PIUs are working in parallel to the government national servants. And the salary difference is huge. Mm-hmm. The PIU staff takes, you know, like thousands of dollars, and then you have the national servants who takes only 200 or 300 dollars a month. And this creates, you know, kind of, you know, you call it jealousy and this is not sustainable and that's where, you know, it adds to issues like corruption and things. So, um, using of country system is one of the principles of the new Deal, mm-hmm. and, and we, as I mentioned, we have uh, agreed with, the, with donors that, okay, there will be a mechanism in place for that where you could, you know, do an analysis, identify what are the risks mm-hmm. and let's solve it together. But if you come, as a donor, if you come and, you know, you're excused that, okay, I'm going to bypass your system because it's not working, then, you know, you will have to perpetually do, so you're just creating a parallel system. government, a system. And
0: as you say, Heather, it's all the transaction costs of the parallel system. So I don't know if there is good evidence, analysis, that follows the accumulation of all those transaction costs so that say you put in 100 million into the nutrition Mm -hmm. program of a country, and then it's all going extraneous to government, transaction cost after transaction cost, what proportion of that gets to activities and on the ground, into communities, into households, into, I don't know. But I don't know if there's been that analysis, if G7 Plus looks at how that escalates, but
2: I imagine it's significant it is um, there is this organization it's called Peace dividend Trust. They regularly conducted s- similar studies they were looking at two things one is the impact of aid on the local economy like yeah. or in other words, how much of aid goes to the to the grassroots mm. and then the second one is as you mentioned the transactional cost. Um, in 2013, or oh, sorry, in 2008, um, when I just joined Ministry of Finance, I still remember um, those figures. They conducted that study in Afghanistan alone. This this study would also contribute to the global conversation on aid effectiveness. Um, and what we found out, you know, Afghanistan was called as a donor-darling country, recipient. we were even blamed, like, you know, other countries, like, okay, you are taking all the aid, and what it found was that 80% of aid that is spent in Afghanistan, or on Afghanistan, not in Afghanistan, on Afghanistan, 80% of that aid goes back to the donor's country. Wow. And only 20% is spent on the, you know, in, in the country where it creates the impact. And that's not only just, you know, it doesn't, that 20% doesn't go to the grassroots level. It would be the calculation of, you know, the entities that they, for example, the bridge or the road construction. Mm -hmm. The rest all goes back to the donor's capital in the form of transaction costs, which are different. For example, consultants, um, you know, then um, the commissions for managing it, implementation cost. If you give it through, if you spend it through UN, they also deduct. I think the global level, they deduct 8% and then at the country, again, 8%. Almost 25% is b- being spent in the transaction cost. Mm. And that's, that's true for each and every dollar, not only just cumulative. So it, if we, we have not done a such study as such because uh, we don't have capacity, and we have, we have been trying to, 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 to do it, uh, to do a comprehensive just to show the figures and then to the taxpayers that look, uh, however, you know, we are grateful uh, but you just need to look at the reality. Who are really benefiting from this money? Mm. Is it, you know, all... You know, sometimes in Afghanistan, when, when, when I was there and still like, you know, sometimes I, I speak to citizens in uh, in the US um, and they tell me, that you know, we spent a lot of money in Afghanistan and it went all... I say, yes, thank you. You did spend a lot of money in Afghanistan, but do you know where this money... or where, the, where did the greater portion of this money went? go? It went back to you know, to, to North country. One thing that they do is through procurement. They do not procure local goods. They do not procure local, you know, service, locally produced service, which are, you know, like, easy to do. it. They have to rely on the international companies. And, you know, of course, if the international company, they have to work there, the, the transaction cost would be big. And I think this also applies to the humanitarian assistance as well. Where you have, you know, the humanitarian goods are coming or services are coming. They are not produced in the country. Now, you imagine if this is produced or if it is procured from the, from the local market. Or Of course, I'm not saying that everything is available. How much impact will it create? Yes. You know, how many jobs will it create? Mm-hmm. I can give you one example. In Afghanistan, we, I'm giving you an example of an Afghanistan again and again because I was particularly working on aid effectiveness and this was our job. So, you know the mineral water that they had to import it from the Middle East or from other countries whereas we could produce mineral water ourselves. For more than 10 years, after more than 10 years of negotiation with donors, with the uh, NATO forces and everyone to convince them that to procure the locally or nationally produced water here. Yeah. After many years of negotiation they could agree to Procure only twenty to twenty-five percent of local water; the rest has to come from abroad. Now, what is the what is the what is the reason that you know forces you that you have to bring? Now, you think about the the, the, the Carbon. freight and everything. Just water, just simple. Yeah. I'm not talking about any other words. Yeah. So this is also one of the biggest issues that we are struggling with. But I think again, I mean, I might be, you know, we are citizens, we are naive. There is a political economy to that uh, sure. and of course i mean they have to give those contracts to their own companies as, as donors mm-hmm. I Want to come back to given that we're here in amman
3: uh, and we've been in in the meeting on yemen to bring it back to the issues of nutrition in yemen and i'm interested to know why you actually came to this meeting given the broad range of issues that you address um, what is it that made you interested and attracted to come to this particular meeting about how we better address malnutrition in in Yemen. And what have you heard over the last three days that gives you hope? Uh, You talk about the importance of changing the narrative around so-called fragile states. What have you heard that gives you hope and where you see the opportunities? And what messages would you want to give to the international community based upon what you've heard about the opportunities there are in Yemen for really making sustainable progress in relation to nutrition.
2: Mm. Well, uh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, two reasons uh, mm. that brings us to this kind of conversations on, you know, food security, nutrition and, you know, humanitarian assistance. One is the fact that every study and every report that you pick on security shows and proves that the major root cause of uh, hunger is war. It stands out to be among you know, climate change and everything, but war has been, even in those countries like Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, war stands out to be one of the biggest reasons. And why we go to these meetings is just to speak those realities that look, if you want to address hunger on a sustainable way, stop war. And this is not only just our call on the international community because not every country is suffering from aggression, foreign aggression, a civil war. We tell the same to our donors, to our member countries. We speak of the same things in our member countries that if you, all these countries have potential. I have been to many of the G7 Plus member countries. I can't believe when I was landing in Central African Republic when I look at the at the terrain when I look at the river When I look at the you know, the greenery and I was like, okay, why is this country poor? These countries have potential, but what is You know stopping them from realizing that potential is war Same goes to Yemen Yemen has you know one of the best coffee In the world it has one of the best honey in the world it has Fisheries you 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 heard you know that the gentleman was giving a presentation Mm. they have a long coastline but why are Children dying out of hunger in Yemen is because of war Tomorrow imagine if there is no war if there is peace The the, the picture would definitely be different instead of you know talking to uh, Humanitarians they would be talking to private sector to come and invest and you know like making sure that they produce enough food for their Uh, kids. And related to that, we are part of this conversation of uh, global conversation, they call it uh, HDP Nexus, the Humanitarian Development Peace Nexus. Um, And that's where, you know, um, uh, we promote a harmonized way of addressing challenges that, you know, there is, we should consider this nexus between peace and development and humanitarian assistance. And during these three days, what I realized also um, is, first of all, um, it gave me a better sense of understanding the severity of a problem, and also the fragmentation that is, you know, caused by war, by you know, the way aid is being delivered, and also seeing the resolve of people, the commitment. We saw that these officials, you know, these technical people, they are really working in a very hard situation, a very hard environment, a very difficult environment. But I was moved by their commitment, and their focus, and their engagement. So that, when I was talking about the trust in institutions, I think that should give a reason to the international community to trust them. Yeah. So that, you know, they could, they could use those institutions, and they could help. So we, 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 we engage in these conversations to pronounce these messages, and also to convince them that, you know, there are root causes. And there is also potential in these countries that you have to spend on the potential rather than reacting to the emergency. Yes, of course, we have to react to the emergencies, but we should stop emergencies from being happening, from happening first, in the first place in these countries. And we work on that potential. And I think that, that's why we, 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 we talk uh, or participate in these meetings. And Yemen is one of our active members. Um, and unfortunately, it's, you know, it has been going through crisis. And we have pronounced this and we have been speaking about this um, for over, you know, since our engagement with that.
3: And if I can add a personal observation and um, reason for hope and enthusiasm for me coming out of these three days, it is the fact that there are so many Yemeni people who are committed to improving the lives of their fellow citizens Uh, And we've seen so much genuine commitment of that. And it is actually those people who understand the political context and the political complexities and know how to navigate across political divides. And it's their voices that that need to be listened to um, and
2: give so much reason for hope, Mm. I think. And, and should be given the consideration, I think, mm. as you rightly put it. You know, like they know their problems, they know their challenges. Um, they know better than anyone, than any, any of us in the room. Mm-hmm. And they need to, you know, they trust on that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, th- it, it, it's, it's true. Um, and, and I was also moved by that sense, like, you know, in many of these countries, when we see these offices coming and when you look at their commitments and seriousness on that. Uh, it gives Mm. you the kind of like hope that you know there will be a change yeah so maybe we should finish on a positive
0: because we're talking
1: Mm -hmm. about hope Mm -hmm. I was going to actually ask you you, Habib having having been through the three days of this meeting is there something you're gonna do as a result of it is there some action you're going to take is there something you're gonna take back to
2: your organization uh, on the back of this meeting yes um uh, indeed. Uh, one thing that I spoke with the minister and also with colleagues that there are a lot of some inspiring lessons from other G7 Plus countries from which Yemen and their partners could benefit. Mm. Uh, and we will promote them. We have already done th- this in the past, but we will try to facilitate that sharing of experiences with them. Of course, in our engagement, with our discussion, we do not teach each other how to do things. Uh-huh. But we share these lessons for inspiring them.
1: and can I ask what specifically what specific
2: areas of lessons
1: you're thinking about or struck you as important?
2: I think uh, now concerning this very particular meeting, and of course there are other lessons that you know in the broader context of the of yemen you know situation, we have from the very beginning we have been uh, we have engaged with them. Um, you know, asking them if you could help in facilitating national dialogue and reconciliation. Um, of course, every time we speak about this and then like when you hear it's complicated, but it's not impossible. Mm. You know, we, one of our strengths is in the fact that we, are, we do not represent any vested interest of any actors here. Sure. Um, you know, we come from different regions, all our members are across the regions and people trust us. Uh, We can, you know, we have done this in the past in, for example, in Central African Republic. Uh, We facilitated dialogue between warring factions and they received us very well and it really culminated into, you know, peace there. Um, So, but on particularly nutrition, uh, on self-sufficiency and also food production, there are some lessons from uh, other conflict-affected countries. Not necessarily all of them in the G7 plus, we also engage with other non-GISON plus countries which are in the same categories. Uh, Rwanda is one of the examples. Mm-hmm. We have a, a, an MOU with the Rwandan Cooperation Initiative which is a repository of good lessons that they share with other countries. Um, you know, they have an excellent uh, track record of, you know, addressing malnutrition mm-hmm. uh, through their homegrown initiatives. And I think this could also be one reason where, you know, this could be one 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 thing that Yemen can learn from. Um, but of course, the, the, the contexts are very different. In Rwanda, there is fortunately no conflict anymore. In Yemen, unfortunately, we have this divide. But probably that might be you know, a small baby steps towards you know, addressing the whole situation. So particularly on, the, on, the, on self-sufficiency, um, addressing malnutrition, we have some experiences from other countries. Thanks
0: so much. N4D's third podcast will be a conversation with Karima El-Hadar, who is the planning and liaison specialist within the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement Secretariat in Yemen. Karima is also an executive committee member of the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement at the global level and is someone that within N4D we've been working with very closely along with her other colleagues in the Ministry of Planning and International Cooperation in Yemen. So that conversation with Karima will be much more of a deep dive into the political economy of addressing malnutrition Yemen and we're hoping to get her reflections on The three-day meeting that we've all just finished in Jordan, which brought together Yemen stakeholders to discuss in much more detail and for the first time actually national efforts towards reducing malnutrition in Yemen. So we look forward to that third podcast and hope you enjoyed the second one. Thank you.